But you ain't two girls, which one we gonna pick? I'd rather pick Laney, cause Taylor be talking shh. She thinks she's all of that with everything in between. But who's about to be prom queen? Laney. Well, Taylor used to be the thing, but now she's not. Laney's going for prom queen, and Taylor's hot. But we don't give a damn about Taylor Vaughn, cause Taylor's fading out, and Laney's on. If I can get with Laney, yo, it'd be real cool. With the queen by my side, we run the whole damn school. Yo, keep it on the break, and I'ma keep this cool. Cool. Taylor did Zach for a carnival. All for the high school jock named Brock With my man click on the beatbox <laughs> Lean uh, Yeah, yeah, she's, she's all that, that. Hello and welcome to the Point 10 Podcast I am Derek Gottlieb here with Susan Harmon To talk about the 1999 film given away by the intro rap She's All That, starring Freddie Prinze Jr., Rachel Lee Cook, and, can it be, Paul Walker. But, as with all teen comedies of this era, everyone is in this movie. Sarah Michelle Gellar makes a momentary appearance. Clea Duvall shows up. The Shermanator is here. Anna Paquin, as well as the guy who plays Fuzzy What's-His-Face in the Netflix Daredevil series. Let's dig into this movie world in which being into art and knowing about geopolitical issues makes you an unlovable, ugly duckling. I say she's all, you say that. She's all. That? <laughs> Wait, do we have to do a rap battle in the middle of the outdoor cafeteria at a very at a very bougie California high school now? Look, I, Is that what we're doing? That's what my high school experience was like. It was like there were like four dances a year. There was always like a court, like the midwinter court or the prom court. Mm-hmm. And the lead up to that was just the focus of all like informal and formal mm-hmm. campus structures. Usher was uh, fucking the public announcement guy, <laughs> and he was just constantly mm-hmm. like, okay, you guys, the race is neck and neck for whatever stupid shit. But yes, rap battles were a <laughs> frequent thing, as rap battles um, about who's going to be fucking prom queen. That's That was, yes. Yeah. Derek, this continues to confirm all of my suspicions about public education. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I've I've said it as as the product of of K through twelve Catholic ed. Actually, K K through always Catholic education. All of my institutions of learning have been huh. uh, Catholic institutions. This just confirms all of my suspicions. Y'all's game was your eyes were not on the prize, but but I will see that your sweet sweet choreographed dance battles uh, numbers kind of like a flash mob, but not really at your proms. Definitely was worth taxpayers' money. <laughs> That was okay. So let me let me just start by saying let me start this whole podcast episode with the admission that crazily I realized when I started this movie that I had never seen it before. This makes it oh. I know. This makes it like one of only a handful of these movies. And I realized, I think that the problem is that it came out in like February. So in 1999, when this came out, February of 1999, I was in college. I was in college at a time when I didn't have a car. Like I was on this little rural campus, whatever. Couldn't have gone. Couldn't have gone anywhere. Couldn't have gone. If it had come out the next year, I would have had a car, blah, 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 blah. But basically, if stuff came out during the summer, 1997, 1998, 1999, I definitely saw it. If it came out anytime during the school year, I'm, I just might never have seen it, especially a movie like She's All That, where like, you know, as a 19 or 20 year old at a schmance liberal arts school, I had to be like, no, no, 
she's all that pff, that's beneath me like that's not the kind of thing that would Pretty i would have Prince on junior yeah, exactly exactly but american pie came out that summer definitely saw it you know like every other stupid you know can't hardly wait which you and i have talked about definitely saw it if it was yep. in the summer like all bets were off who knows well and, and two, so in addition to you never having potentially seen this before, Derek, I think this is also sort of breaking the the trend for us. And I went in kind of thinking that Can't Hardly Wait would probably like not hold up and was like pleasantly surprised yeah, that yeah. other than like a couple of like bits and pieces, it actually was 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 very watchable. Clueless, we knew, was going yes, to be great and definitely like still was held held up beautifully um but this one it all again came from i think uh, again me referencing the now i will name it correctly uh listeners sixpence none the richer right there i made some go. sort of comment about penny farthing <laughs> soundtrack right. comment uh-huh. um but sixpence none the richer and the kiss me song which was of course heavily of featured in a very sort of like major moment in this film mm-hmm. um but when i i remember being like ah you know this movie was like fine uh, the rewatch, I was like, oh, this movie's bad. It's a bad movie. So now we get to dunk on it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And let me start the dunking by being like, you know, having never seen this before, I was mm-hmm. like the moment in prom where Usher, in fact, says says that thing about like, OK, show me the dance I taught you guys. And I was like. Yep. And then we watch like a 15 minute professional number, oh, yeah. which is outstanding but i'm like haven't i been watching this movie like haven't i been watching the the machinations of everybody trying to figure out who's Mm going to be prom queen for like the last two weeks they're hanging out at the beach they're playing volleyball blah 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 they're not doing the six hours a day that of rehearsal that it would have taken to have like pulled off this fucking incredible number i pointed that out to chelsea who was like you just need to chill you just need to chill basically this is not like (laughs) this is not an important thing she's like this happens all the time in these movies there's always a choreographed dance number i'm like 10 things i hate about you there's not there's a prom or whatever where i think the radiators Mm -hmm. play there's uh you know there's tons of movies in which there's a prom scene the choreographed dance Mm -hmm. that lasts that long not part of that yep so there, there. They were dunk. they were fighting to fill that ninety minutes. That was that was very evident to me. Um, I, out of curiosity, dug in a little bit to the writers of of this uh, yes. delightful film, and I found out that sections of the film were uh, rewritten uh, by a very prominent Hollywood screenwriter director. I'm going to sit on until the appropriate moment to talk about the scene in which they definitely wrote, uh, and it is going to blow your mind, Derek. I Listeners wait. already get to thinking it's it's going to change your life. Um, but yeah, she's all that. Not a good movie, but I will say yet another example of the phenomenon of the rewatch of these films and being like everyone was in this film, right? Seriously, everyone. Obviously. I was like Paul Walker. Holy shit! I was not ready oh, for shit. that. Baby Paul Walker, Dulé Hill, right? And yep. wait for it, the film premiere of Gabrielle Union. Really? This first was time it. on the silver screen. First time. I was like, uh, oh, I guess she was in Lil all Kim? these movies. Lil' Kim was in this yep. movie. Clea Duvall, yep. obviously, is in the movie. Obviously. It, fucking, mm-hmm. it's, in, I mean, we've already mentioned so many. Usher whom I was also not prepared for the uh, Mm -hmm. what is his name? I want to say it's Kevin Pollack, but it's not the guy who plays Rachel Lee Cook's dad, uh, who was also one of the the, one of the crew in 
The Usual Suspects, which is the only movie I know him from, but he does good work here and everything. I was like, oh. And obviously, we need to talk about the fact that Kieran Culkin was in this movie as well as the little brother. Having been following Succession for the last couple of seasons, I was like, oh, boy. Wow. Mm -hmm. Romulus. Mm -hmm. Also, I would say... Uh, we, again, saw the beginnings of Dear Sweet Roman's later habits when it's like, oh, Kieran Culkin already played the role in which he said sexually inappropriate things to siblings. Yep. He's already done this. We're, we watched the genesis of, of Roman Roy <laughs> just in front of us. I love the idea of Kieran Culkin sort of like coming onto succession and be like, no, 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 I've got something. I've got something that I can do. No, it's kind this. of a sticky thing. Yeah. Before. Yeah. No, hold on. Is, no, I got it. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I can, I can, I can reach into this. I can, I can select something. Yeah, what a, what an interesting time. So again, as you said, movie came out in '99, and so to, to, to give a boilerplate for it, this is in terms of our dear, sweet Freddie Prince Jr., the other half of my favorite Hollywood romance, um, of course, between him and Sarah Michelle Gellar, who's in uh, this which movie. they're still married. That's awesome! How sweet. Uh, Still married. If they ever get divorced, love isn't real, basically. Or more accurately, someone has gambling debts, I think. Um, That's probably what's actually going on. But this is hot, hot, hot on the heels of not only uh, I know what you did last summer, but also I still know what you did last summer. So this is Freddie Prince Jr. at just like the peak of his career. You can tell by his sideburns length. The fact that his hair constantly looks wet. Here was also my question. I remember Rachel Lee Cook kind of sort of being a somewhat prominent actor at the time. But then I was like, oh, there was a someone who was sort of famous in the 90s in this movie. And then when I saw the movie, I was like, I literally don't remember you. And I don't know that you've been in anything else since then. So do you remember Rachel Lee Cook, Derek Gottlieb? That's my question. The answer is not really. Like, I remember the name Rachel Lee Cook, right? Like, mm-hmm. I thought she was a prominent actress, but as I sort of, like, IMDb this movie, I'm like, she really has not been in very much since then. Like, she blew up in this movie, period, but that's literally the only, like, in a movie featuring everyone that seemingly, seemingly birthed or supported almost everyone's career, it seems to have killed hers, which is which is weird because, like, she's not bad in this movie. She's She is... Good, I want to say at the end. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, she seems like she's sort of like leaned into like a lot of like Hallmark movies, which part oh, of me is yeah. like, maybe, you know what? It's a steady check. That's right. And it's easy filming and you know your thing and you can go to Hallmark cons. So or maybe <laughs> everywhere she went, people just kept playing Kiss Me by Sixpence and on the Richer. And she's like, I can't live with this. I need to I need to redirect my career. Sixpence None the Richer is the worst name for a band. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Would Uh, you have preferred like half half, half farthing plus additional annum, half farthing per annum? Your Sixpence None the Richer cover band? (laughs) I was like, yeah, just give me like a name (laughs) like. Five shillings and four pence. That's it. Like, why the none the richer is the part that just fucks with my mind, I think. They just, I don't know. They just really want to make sure that you're you're set. Um, uh, but yeah, Derek. So I'm so glad that I forced you to watch this oh piece of, of teen garbage. Um, but I think 
in addition to one, me being like coming off of us, like watching two movies that like did hold up well. Yeah. I think one of the things that really rubs salt in the wound for me is that this is obviously a retelling of the classic story of Pygmalion. Yep. Right. Another, again, we're hitting on, right? Movies about education. Um, And there it is. Uh, And uh, Pygmalion, uh, I love in general, but also My Fair Lady is my favorite musical. So I have an affection for this broader storyline. So seeing it demolished made me sad. Um, So first and foremost, your thoughts on Pygmalion-esque stories, Derek Gottlieb. On Pygmalion-esque stories. So like for me, thank you for bringing this up. First of all, I'd just like to confess for our listener that uh, there was this period of my life, maybe I was 10 or 12, I hadn't moved to Madison yet, but I was just, I had like every musical soundtrack on cassette tape for whatever reason. I knew all of the lyrics to all of them, I feel like, My Fair Lady most prominently among them. So I'm just going to drop that little tidbit in there. Here's my take on Pygmalion stories in general. Like, it all comes down to how the leads or how, like, the adaptation handles the fact that a bet has been made. And, like, and how one deals with the kinds of transformation that happens in the male lead in the process of thinking that the male lead from this vastly superior position is going to teach the female lead something about how to live the right kind of life. And, like, it is so hard to do well. I actually, like, thought that that the very end of the movie, when Freddie Prince Jr. is having that conversation in her living room with her, that was not bad. Everything surrounding it was pretty bad, but I was kind of surprised to be like, I I buy this. I don't love that he's like, well, I'm kind of thinking about art school too. I'm like, don't weigh her down with your bullshit just because you've learned <laughs> something. But like, but but like his his thing about oh my uh, god, yeah. His thing about, like, not having really known who he was until he met her. I'm like, that's really vulnerable. You don't really see that all that often in, like, the in that particular way. It's not as pathetic as um, as Henry Higgins's version of that in My Fair Lady, I feel like. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not laden mm-hmm. with the same kind of class thing, even though it's supposed to. Uh, so... Yeah, so I didn't mind mm-hmm. that. I thought that everything leading I thought that it was dramatically unearned, like period. None of the plot oh, points yes. leading up to it justified that. But I liked I liked that little that little thing. So that's my take on Pygmalion stories. How do you deal with the fact that a bet has been made, etc., and that kind of confession? None of it here really made sense. There's that moment where uh, Freddie Prince Jr.'s ex-girlfriend, I can't remember her name or her character's name, leans over his shoulder and is like, you didn't uh, think Tiffany? You, were, you know, Taylor, maybe? I don't fucking know. It doesn't matter. No. She's like, no, She like leans over his shoulder and is like, you didn't uh, think. It's Taylor. No, you're right. It's definitely Taylor. You didn't think you were cool for real, did you? The and worst. Freddie Prince Jr. is just standing there. I'm like, that called for something. It was all for fakes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And exactly. he did nothing. Uh, more indecision, if you will. Uh, so this mm, is my question, mm. then, I would say, in your opinion, right, knowing that Pygmalion stories all center around transformation, right, the phenomenon of transformation, who gets transformed, what that looks like, do you think anyone in this movie actually experienced any kind of transformation? I Yes, yes. Racial... <laughs> 
Rachel Lee Cook. <laughs> Rachel Lee Cook ended up with a haircut befitting her name. Boom! Transformation. Total transformation. Uh, of no, nobody, nobody uh, got any different. I mean, there's there's all kinds of like little things in this movie, like the fact that uh, Freddie Prince Jr.'s dad is played by Otter from Animal House in like this ironic sort of turn, which is he's the one talking about decision and responsibility and whatever. But like the movie seemed to work so hard to like set up the conditions that needed to transform. And then aside from sort of like verbal nothing. testimony, nothing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely nothing. Yeah. Well, and I think like the, the conversation with the father in particular for me was an example of like, is there half of a scene on a cutting room floor somewhere or is this just garbage? Because dear, to set this up just for you, garbage. dear sweet listeners, so yeah. that you don't make the mistake of watching this movie, unless you also want to, to hate watch it with us. Pretty Finch, Freddie Prince Jr.'s, um, his his flaw is that uh, he, he cannot decide where he wants to go to college. His choice is being, let's count them out now, Dartmouth, Yale, <laughs> Harvard. Uh, I just want to point yeah. out that you Those know are- we were talking about Otter and from Animal House, which takes place on Dartmouth's campus. That's where his dad went to school. I'm just realizing that right now. That like in the movie, that's where Freddie Prince Jr.'s dad went to school. His dad was you know played by the same guy who played Otter. Animal House occurs at Dartmouth. Are we watching a blending of universes here? Does this movie take place in the Animal I think House we universe? Are. <laughs> I think that proves it absolutely takes place in the Animal House universe. I think that's what I'm taking away from this. And also gives more credence to because, and again, dear listeners, this is this is the pivot. Freddie Prince Jr. can't decide where to go to school and is lying about it to everyone because his father keeps pressuring him to go to Dartmouth because that's where he had the best four years. Not go to Dartmouth and get a business degree, right. even though you secretly want to be a writer, right? Like, right. Not like... Go, you want to go live in the Pacific Northwest because you love nature and have something about your family. Or it's just a like, well, I don't know that I want to go to Dartmouth because dad, dad's kind of telling me to go to Dartmouth. And so then they have the moment, right? They sit down on the couch. They're ready to have the conversation. His dad is like, I'm not making you make those choices. I'm going through a lot. And then... That's it? Nothing. Yeah. There's like, we are, we are set up to believe that there's something between father and son that like, we're not, we're not set up to, to believe anything like that. It's just sort of given to us that Freddie Prince Jr. is reacting against pressure that his father is putting on him. But then we never see that pressure really. And and when we see his dad is, dad is like, you've had these acceptance letters, literally just pick one. <laughs> and, and like, that's the pressure. Yeah, de- deadlines are lapsing. Do something, <laughs> exactly. anything at all. It's not dad's pressure. It's literally deadlines are lapsing. Do something. That's, that's the pressure. And like, I, I also want to say that, I, you know, it's garbage. There isn't anything deeper than this. But I think it's also existing in a cinematic universe, maybe not the Animal House universe. But, like, the number of movies going on around this time about, like, sons battling the sort of banal forces of social reproduction is, like, all I can think of is Varsity Blues from, what, a year uh-huh. or two b- before in which... <laughs> The iconic line. Yes, exactly. I don't want your life. I don't want your life. It's, your, it's your amazing. Life. <laughs> it's amazing. So oh, like, the beak. But that is like, I feel like the movie is just trying to like 
live in the reflected glow of that moment to be like, oh, obviously, like I get what's going on here between father and son. We don't actually have to establish it. It's just sort of given that, yes, high school athletic star responding to dad's overbearingness, even though I'm just going to tell you about it and never show it, even though dad's overbearingness. And I don't think this is just because I'm older now just comes down to the fact that like, uh, buddy, this says you had to respond by whatever, you know, April 1st, it's May. What are you doing? Yeah. That doesn't seem like overbearingness to me. Well, and I think, and I wonder too, if this is again, to, to bring our dear sweet listeners, drop the hammer of philosophy of education upon what should be a easy breezy 90s movie podcast, right? If we're getting a window into, again, so much of for me, like, this is where, like, education goes sideways, right? When, like, you've got Freddie Prince Jr. and he feels this very deeply, he does not want to choose the thing that has been suggested in front of him, yeah, right? Yeah. So. All of this energy is being directed at this, like, critique of the standard decision in front of him, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, we get up we get up into that moment, like, I don't want this thing. Like, I don't want to continue to proceed a pace, like, in this direction. But then when we like, go, great, what? What else do you want to do instead, right? Boom. Deafening silence. He defaults to kind of maybe art school. Yeah, right? he's just like, I'll just follow you. I'll just follow you. girlfriend's going? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Like all the ways in which when we're setting up the educational prospect, right, even if we like put the time and effort into asking, right, like so many people like education is about asking questions. It's about, you know, like whether it's critiquing things or digging below the surface, like, yes, and also surface any kind of opinion and or direction or desire about anything at all Yeah. to move from there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah internalize whatever taking the materials that are sort of lying all around you figuring out what they are and how you can use those to fulfill your own sort of project of human flourishing in the world and yeah this is like this is maybe the most egregious example of uh, a main character whose whose angstiness or who's like flaw that is going to be corrected through falling in love with rachel lee cook is They have to work so hard to establish it, and it makes no fucking sense. He's got his dad, which is underestablished. And also, there's, like, we should talk about the performance art thing at some point that happens where he's in— Oh, Derek, that's where I was hoping we'd go next, the hacky sack. Yeah, let—okay. Like, that made—that was so off-putting to me that I could hardly stand— to watch it not not him in the audience but him in the hacky sack moment in which he's like here maybe i have some stuff going on below the surface and i'm under a lot of pressure and i'm like pressure sigh just just don't let it drop don't let it drop well more importantly derek true or false this would have been again directly aimed at you did you indulge in the great social vice that was hacky sack while you were in college or high school. Be honest now. Tell your listeners. They want to know. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. It <gasps> had, it had, I mean, are you shocked? It, like, <laughs> this, I held oh, yes. hope. Here's, here's, okay, here's the, the hacky sack story in my life goes basically like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was connected to falling in with the wrong crowd, by which I mean the theater students. <gasps> uh, oh, no. 
in like ninth or 10th grade, there was a period of my, so like I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, obviously none of us could drive yet. So like me and my two friends every like Saturday or Sunday would bike like, it, like through the summer and into the fall, we would like bike down to the Memorial Union, which was maybe like a 15 or 20 minute ride from our houses, not outside of the range, but like far enough to feel like, well, now we're on campus, you know, like, mm-hmm. and then so we now, would we're, like, now we're doing it. And yeah. we would like walk up from the library mall uh, in the direction of the Capitol on State Street, the massive pedestrian mm-hmm. mall uh, in Madison. And we would never make it more than a block or two because there was a Wendy's and there was a comedy sports there. But also there was Urban Outfitters and Ragstock. Ragstock, where oh. we bought all of our like Eastern European yeah. Army surplus <laughs> coats that we wore, obviously. Mm-hmm. But both Urban obviously. Outfitters, stupidly, and Ragstock also stocked hacky sacks. I feel like it was a weekly thing that we would buy one and then spend a lot of time working it in and then like whatever. That lasted... It felt like it was like a staple of the high school experience. But if I am being honest and truthful, mm-hmm. that feels like a late freshman year into maybe like sophomore winter thing. And then that was that was the end of that. Then it was like, oh, that was the end. That was the end. So the idea that like, first of all, the idea that like the most popular kid in school, this athlete would have mm-hmm. A hacky sack. Just a hacky sack on hand. Just ready. Just ready to have. He's ready to sack. I was like, (laughs) I was like, was this like when he pulled it out? I was like, it would make sense that this is like a thing that soccer kids did, but I don't remember soccer kids doing that. So odd. That's all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you, Um, did you ever get sucked into the sack? as (laughs) Sir, absolutely not. I said no to the sack. I said no to I said no to drugs. We all know what kind of poncho wearing reprobates hacky sack. That's right. Oh, Latinas. Um, yes. Well, it's good to know, Derek, that you did indeed let the hacky sack drop as, you know, of course, yes. Freddie Prince Jr. does when he lets all of his emotions drop on stage. Um, I'm sorry. Here's, here's what you need to know. Oh, go ahead. Were those supposed to be all of his emotions that <laughs> he let drop on stage? All of, okay, yes. yes. Every single last one. <laughs> all right, all I was just, I, just calibrating, calibrating my expectations. Please continue. Yep. Yeah, that's as, about as many emotions as you can expect from that character. Uh, so that that scene in particular, uh, this movie was, was sort of ghostwritten, essentially, or at least co-written by a prominent current Hollywood screenwriter and actor, who definitively wrote that specific scene. Derek, would you like to guess or would yes, you just I would like me to, to rip off the suspense no. band-aid? I, okay. Bob Odenkirk. Charlie Kaufman. Hold on. Mm-hmm. Nope, that's it. That's what I got for now. Those are my two guesses. Okay. It's definitely Charlie Kaufman. <clears throat> Fresh off of his experience with Stuart Little, M. Night Shyamalan. Oh my God! Uh huh. This mates. Yep. <laughs> He's got to have been writing it. He's got to have been writing the Sixth Sense like right around then, right? Like. He's like, he's like, I've got oh, my masterpiece in yeah. progress. Hold on, let me just write this one scene real quick. <laughs> Was he like brought in to be like, hey, we need something <laughs> weird? I know a guy. 
we need something really strange and emotional, um, which I know he specifically. Now, my question is, did he do the entire? I wasn't not able to establish whether or not he did the entire performance art scene or just we know he did the the, the seconding. The, the seconding, seconding is what I shall refer to it as. I don't know if he is responsible for the world's most explicit behold the Madonna, the salvation for you image of Rachel Lee Cook at the end of the performance art piece, just in case Seriously. you were going to miss it. Right. We need to, we need to really establish what is happening for our audience as qu- clearly yeah. as possible. That, like I lit, I will be honest. I like as that movie was playing. I was as that scene was playing in particular. I was like, I was like, I need to pay attention to this because this is going to come up in the podcast. And then I was like, I just, I just kind of have to look away for a little bit and like, <laughs> like wait until this is not happening. Like this is all of this is so bad and makes no sense. And like the depictions of the audience members being like, hmm, especially when Freddie Prince Jr. is like, they're like, here, we have like, let's take this, like the one non-artist in the audience. Let's throw his ass up on stage and just, you know, see what happens. It'll be art. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, as anyone who is sort of like down or been adjacent to performance art knows, there were still far too many people in that audience oh, yeah. for it to have actually been a performance art piece. Yeah, absolutely not. No, all of those people should have either been in on the piece and or the one token significant other who gets dragged to this and goes, oh, shit, this is this is what I've signed. Oh, no. Oh, no. Like and, and you can see them like recalibrating, like, am I prepared to date a performance artist for the rest of at least maybe a hot second. <laughs> That's, that is exactly right. The the idea that like you've got like mm-hmm. I'm imagining the casting call for this uh, for this particular scene. They're like, can you just like squint at the camera for a second and look like you're appraising something? Like, hmm. Yes, I'm thinking very hard about what I am seeing, even though what I am seeing requires almost no thought at all. It is so right on the surface what is happening. It was incredible. Just, well, and this is meant to, to be, because we've, we've been talked about sort of the, the, the piece of essentially sort of damp toast that is Freddie Prince Jr. And all of his feelings in this movie. Um, But I think the performance art piece is really meant to show you like, you know, the complexity of Lainey Boggs, right? right. right? Like we have like the, the first half is meant to establish like, oh, she's like so closed off from people and she's like a nerd and like maybe she's not quite good enough artistically. And so the performance art piece is meant to be like, oh, behold, the untold depths and waters of Lainey Boggs. But so pivoting to her, right? Other than again, that incredible haircut uh, that was clearly like, you know, the, the pivot point of the entire movie. Um, yeah, any transformation whatsoever in her slash what did you think of her as a character? I thought she was so cardboard cutouty. Like I could not I mean, this is the problem. Mm-hmm. There honestly, and we're gonna come back to this, I thought that Paul Walker's character might have somehow been the most interesting character in the movie. We're gonna we're gonna we don't need to dive yep. into that right now, but like Part of the problem is that, like, we're we're doing a Pygmalion story, so everybody knows it. So, like, Rachel Lee Cook and Freddie Prinze Jr. are both in this unenviable position of stepping into something that is poorly conceived, poorly written, and that everybody knows. So, like, they really are cardboard cutouts because they kind of have to be. The The writing isn't going to elevate whatever they're doing. The situations that they're in are only meant to very sort of sweatily 
reveals something about their uh, characters at every moment that is supposed to serve a larger plot purpose. They didn't have a lot to work with. So, like, Rachel Lee Cook's character in general is so, okay, so she's supposed to be an art student who is... I mean, part of my problem, especially especially now, having, you know, at great, well, I don't know when this happened in my life, but having really steered into my sort of nerd misanthrope uh, portion of my identity, generally, I'm like, mm-hmm. she is living the motherfucking life. I don't know what her, pro- like, I don't know what she's worried about. And she's fine with it. Like, she's she's got her art. She, like, wears the clothes that she wants to wear. She, like takes care of her dad and whatever. And like in she's living a life that she is perfectly happy with. And if she seems prickly to other people, that's their fucking problem. You know, it's not like there's nothing that needs fixing. Exactly. Other than her fat. Yeah. Other than fat shaming her best friend who was sort of, I thought a little bit queer coded until the very end when we had, again, speaking of another reference of like, Oh, they're in that movie. In both cases, right? Anna yeah. Paquin, right? Like coming out of left field to be like, I go to, I'm super yeah, Catholic exactly, school with yeah. girls. And I'm like, oh, they queer coded him just enough to be, to get a beard. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, she's, she's, Rachel Lee Cook is fine. Fine with herself. Like, like her problems start when Freddie Prince Jr. is like, yeah, is like, I'm going to take this utter nobody and make them prom queen. And I'm like. Trent. I'm going to transform her. The thing about Pygmalion stories is that this is like, I know like the movie tries to do some work in, in being like, whatever, her dad is a pool cleaner. So, and everybody else's parents are like whatever business people, I guess like, but the class distinctions are not nearly as sharp as they were in the original Pygmalion or in uh fucking my no. fair lady. And so it's not the amount of work that needs to be done to transform her is much less. And the particular like lines that she's supposed to be crossing are not nearly as rigid. So it makes the stakes seem a lot lower and the transformation seem a lot more superficial. You might say it just comes down to a haircut and taking her glasses off. And of course, not another teen movie, which came out like a year after this, just immediately skewered the sort of convention. But like, it's just, it, it's a ludicrous it's a ludicrous setup that I don't know. the The real challenge is to sort of like the real challenge that Freddie Prince Jr. seems to face is that for a, a person like Lainey Boggs, she really could like fly under the radar at this like big California high school. So the challenge isn't to make her acceptable to people as prom queen. It seems to me as much as it is to like associate her name with somebody that they might want to vote for, which is a totally different proposition. The idea that like she has to become popular is not, it does not seem to be like structurally foreclosed to her in the way that like becoming a lady is to Eliza Doolittle, you know? Precisely. And especially when it's up and against, right? So again, you know, once once Lainey is put forward as a potential sort of like prom queen option, uh, thus leading to rap battling in the quad about how great Lainey is, um, it's it's evident at this point in time that her biggest competition, Taylor, you know, Freddie Prince Jr.'s ex-girlfriend, is just terrible. She's turned terrible. Gabrielle Union has made comments yeah. about like, 
hey, you've become terrible. I'm going to stop being friends with you. Um, who, again, to the point of like side characters who were yes, more interesting. Gabrielle Union, yes. more interesting as Especially a character. because she's got that you know? foil, the other um, one, who is not, who is, who is like, you can't break with Taylor over there. I'm like, here's some interesting drama. Like there is a schism and it's not like one is getting ostracized. It's like, it's like, it's like an emperor has no clothes kind of situation. And the, like the whole discussion going on there. I would have loved to have spent more time with that friend group in this movie for sure. Gabriel Union is also wonderful. Yeah. Exactly. So the whole thing, as you said, is just sort of like basically like, oh, we're just raising Lainey's profile. But then on top of it, like the the overbearing sort of oft repeated line over and over and over again. Right. Like you just need to open up to people You need to open up, you know, like you need to, you know, just chill out and just open up down to the, you know, the definitive supposed oh change marking scene in which the art teacher runs at up to prom. her at I know that. prom. OK, sure. Sure. Why not? Let's do it. Um I was like, ma'am, you're an art teacher. Go go do some drugs somewhere in your spare time. Don't be at this prom. They're not paying you uh, enough. Look, she's like, she's like, hey, they're not paying you. Like, perhaps let's let's extend ourselves as much as possible imaginatively and be like, maybe she's one of the official chaperones. You still don't you're still not like, oh shit, it's Lainey Boggs. I have to tell her something important about how her piece really moved me the best thing she's done all year. She really reached inside and became vulnerable. I'm like, her whole character has been like I know myself and I'm comfortable with myself and like, and that's, and I'm fine with it. The idea that that's a pathology of some kind is, is a really weird thing. The art teacher's like, I faxed all of the art schools last night about how I was like, why wouldn't you do that for a student right away? Like, I don't understand. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't you just advocate for them in general? Why wouldn't you want them to access that? Um, but yeah, and the whole, the marker, right. Again, to the point of like, she was fine with herself. she had made her social decisions. She felt good about them was her literally sort of like talking about her dead yeah, mother. Yeah. Right. So like she, she showcases and features her, her dead mother. Uh, and then that is the sign for people. Right. So it's really only through trauma porn yes, exploitation yes. that other people will now definitively believe that Lainey Box is transformed and opened for change. Right. Like Give give us again in the well to the point of like the line that I think I both was like a fucking course at the end of this movie when she says it's just like pretty woman except I'm not a hooker. Oh my right? god! Yes, and I'm like, can we get into this now? <sighs> yes. Yeah, uh, but arguably that that moment too, right? Of like, finally, we'll accept you when you just like. Again, like give us this like very sensitive, deeply private thing that you're trying to keep to yourself and keep safe and private, which to be fair, everyone talks about like, oh, Lainey, just open up to people. And I'm like, most most people are being very unnecessarily yeah, mean to her. Totally. I think that she is very, very within her rights to sort of be closed off. To exactly. But she f- finally exploits herself. Right. Prostitutes herself emotionally. Boom. And then it's fine. So actually, Lady Boggs, it's exactly like Pretty Woman. <laughs> That's an amazing analysis, and you and you're you're absolutely right. The the like the use of trauma exploitation as a it's not trauma processing, which I think we're supposed to think that it is. It's not going through something and and really dealing yeah. with it. It's displaying it publicly in a way like for for other people's consumption and that's it that's there's no there's nothing beyond that i like okay i'm gonna 
veer away from this movie for a second because it's been on my mind in a way that is really aggravating to me. I'm reading uh, a book right now, John Cagg's uh, American Philosophy, A Love Story, which has been in my like list forever, and I'm just sort of getting around to it. I think it came out in like 2017. He's a philosopher at UMass Lowell. I've been texting with Kathleen Dynabowitz about this because I remember that she had read it for some time. I'm like, did you, did you hate this book? I kind of fucking hate it. Uh, but it's, it's whatever. The story is sort of interesting. He stumbles on this like uh, William Hawking's like private library containing first editions of like Descartes discourse on method and whatever it's a fat. And like, he's like looking at like William James's original marginalia and like the pages of something that's really fascinating. That part of the story is fascinating, but also like he's, this is a book for a popular audience. So he's trying to talk about like American pragmatism uh, and the development of American pragmatism from like Emerson uh, up to and including Dewey a little bit, but really because we're talking about Hawking, it's a little earlier in the, whatever and a little more harvard specific than that uh so he's doing that but at the same time he's talking about sort of the dissolution of his first marriage and falling in love with another professor and i think what is supposed to be happening here is the connection is that he is trying to exploit his trauma for popular consumption but it also just feels to me like he is lying about it a lot of it. Like I, I can't tell if he's not a very good writer. And so like none of the scenes that he's recreating, like he's he's telling this like sort of like the story of discovering this library and new love all at once and in very much in the present tense. And I'm yeah. like, why does this dialogue sound so bad? This is not how people talk. Is like I'm like, are you just misremembering this? Or was shit really this boring? Or when he's like going through some of the like the like when he's sort of giving away some of the details about like the dissolution of his previous relationship he's doing it like in this very odd way in which he's simultaneously trying to be like look at how fucked up i was but also like without really revealing but it wasn't my, but it wasn't my it, fault it's like okay yeah. i'm gonna like here's a detail yeah. from the book like he's like he's talking about like i wish i had listened to my whatever socratic diamond like uh earlier i like all these voices were telling me not to get married and not to stay married and all that kind of stuff and so like two days before my 30th birthday party when when we had invited all my like friends and family from around the country to come celebrate i sold my wedding ring and this occasioned a fight between like a blow-up fight at my birthday party because like my wife got mad i'm like whoa let's back up there for a second you like just out of like something must have gone through your mind when you you sold your wedding ring. Did you not think that was going to start? Sold a fight? your wedding like, ring. What, what, like, it, no. I don't understand. So it's it's it's. I, I've been grappling with this for like two days, like in like discussions with other people. But like, I can't tell what bothers me exactly so much. It feels like it's trying to be really revealing in a way that ultimately mm-hmm. is omitting a lot of what would make this story really resonant anyway so like this your the the conversation about the exploitation of one's own trauma for public consumption i feel like he's mm-hmm. definitely like he definitely got the public consumption part of this like this really raised his profile he's become quite famous he wrote a book on like visiting nietzsche's retreat in the engadine in switzerland and like meditating on that and then whatever he's become sort of a, a superstar on the basis of this kind of writing and i'm like but like part of this marketing is the personal story, and that is the part that just feels fake to me. Anyway, that's it's. It sounds to me like he read 
Possession by A.S. Byatt, <laughs> which is an excellent book. Uh, and, uh, like, again, a great example of uh, the, like, parallel, like, love stories, also, yeah, like, yeah, lit yeah. detective stuff that I go gaga sure. for every time. That'll get me every time. Uh, it sounds like he read Possession and was like, this is a great book. And rather than being like, man, A.S. Byatt, real good, was like, I'm going to steal that <laughs> and write it as my next book. It's really... What anyway, do. Susan, you should read this book and then report back to me on what you think. About the, I, I, <laughs> Just to see what I think. I'll get yeah, right totally. on that. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Um, yeah, poor, poor Lainey Boggs. Also, too, I think the amount of like Lainey Boggs was indeed a woman, a woman before her time. I was thinking about like, as everyone was like, quit asking us to think about like the environment and Mogadishu. Oh, I know. Like if Lainey Boggs had been a college student today, she would be, she would be fine. She would be uh, gaggles of friends doing great. Cause she wasn't even really overbearing about it. She's just sort of like, Hey, this is not great stuff. It was, Dolphins. that was, that was, also, yeah, exactly. So if she'd just been on a college campus right then, that would have been fine. That's what my college was like, for sure. Like you yeah, had like, fine. that's like you sort of divided yourself according to like which of these issues, all of which you cared about, was the most prominently messed up and then organized the around it. Yeah, most salient, most important yeah. to you. So yeah. like, so that, like, it, it's basically like she's just a college student still in high school. I recognize that character. Like I can get on board with that character, but none of the occasions on which she brought up any of these kinds of things felt natural in any way. She, it, it also, it needs to be said that for somebody who cares about all this shit, she's not really doing anything about any of it. Like she's not involved in any organization's design. She's just like, she, I mean, they're a more believable character who's very similar from can't hardly wait is the, the girl who is like cutting the fucking six pack rings at the party. Like she is plausibly like, even though she's just supposed to be a caricature in the same way that this aspect of Lainey Boggs is supposed to be a caricature. At least she's, at least she's doing something. Cutting six pack rings. Yeah. She's doing something. Hey, Derek, she's making, Lainey Boggs is making performance art. All right. That's right. Still, be silent. Be still. Be silent. She's bringing art into the world. And to um, an oh gosh. incredible oh. audience. An audience of incredible scale and size. That's how you change the world. Just absolutely. Absolutely. Well, as I look at time, Derek, I feel like, ooh, this movie. I'm so sorry that I made you watch it. I knew that it would be bad. I didn't know it would be that bad. But did you have a favorite moment and or favorite characters anywhere in there? I mean, I got to talk about Dean Sampson. Paul Walker was the biggest surprise to me in this movie. Give it to us. I had no idea that mm -hmm. he was going to be in it. This is the, I mean, Paul Walker is a beautiful man. This is the worst that he looks in a movie, I think, that I have seen him has in. Ever has looked. ever looked. Has ever I'm looked. I'm like, yeah. was he just like snorting protein powder this whole time like why does he look so puffy this like i don't i don't understand how you can take that man and make him look like that maybe it was part of his character i didn't understand his motivation at all and again maybe this is because like i felt like i had to watch this movie like at an angle like i couldn't look directly into it like the sun but uh 
and maybe so like maybe I missed it, but like I realized that he's supposed to be an evil character and that like we're supposed to interpret everything that he does towards the end of the movie as insincere, as designed to win this bet and or fuck Laney. That is another thing to be like the sexual politics of this movie are real fucking weird. Uh but like, as he's doing something that I think that we as the audience are supposed to interpret as obviously lying to her to get what he wants, I was suddenly like, how are we supposed to know that he's lying? Like, he doesn't, nothing he says is really, like, Freddie Prince Jr. has not asked for the prom. He's like, hey, like, I'm just asking you to the prom. I like, I would like to go to the prom with you. It's only, like, in the bathroom scene that suddenly I'm like, oh, he has, like, what, like, a rape dungeon set up for, like, for her, like, in a, in, he in paid a lot of money for this room. I'm like, what? Yeah, like it's a that's a very sort of weird left turn that is meant to sort of throw a sort of a, a little bit of danger into the movie. But otherwise, I was sort of like, does he? What is his de- like? I realize the stock part he's playing from Pygmalion, but I'm like, he has too many lines to not have anything else going on. That's all. And the motivations are sort of unclear, right? Because it's it's presented initially as like, oh, here is this, you know, close friend who's like, let's make a bet. It's, you know, again, like it's sporting. Like, let me let me throw like a, you know, a wrench in your thing. And then he like becomes increasingly more and more emotionally activated yes. by all of this. And you're like, oh, yes. so he's like, you know, like, again, Freddie Prince Jr. is like frenemy. This is the only reading that I think can speak to and make sense not of Paul Walker's puffiness, Nothing but of can. whatever the yeah. hell that writing was going on. Take everything that you saw, right, from that movie, Derek. Now read it through the lens. Paul Walker is queer, closeted, and in love with Freddie Prince Jr. Oh my God. Dear sweet listeners, he leaned away from the mic. <laughs> oh my God, that's brilliant. Yep. Oh my God, that's brilliant. Is this just because I want to queer code everything? Possibly. Is it because everything secretly is queer coded subconsciously? Also possibly. Oh my God. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, the part, the part of the plot of his, whatever plan to bed Laney Boggs or whatever that may like, Mm -hmm. first of all, okay. Holy shit. (laughs) First of all, like, that made that never made sense as a plot device and like it's supposed to it's supposed to in, like throw this element of danger into the thing so much so that Freddie Prince Jr like takes off in his yellow jeep to like try to stop Dri- this from happening driving around town must find and yeah. Laney Boggs meanwhile has gotten out of this dangerous jam by apparently just walking out of the prom just no she she uh, does the little like uh, again the the safety foghorn in his ear and then is right. like I'll get home myself right like That's right. Like, yeah, she just finds her way home. All I, good. I was like, "Oh, that's not a I mean, first of all, like seems like a very late 90s way to be like women don't need the male protagonist to save her, like you can use the foghorn thing or whatever." But also like that doesn't that didn't seem like a very serious threat that like Aside from Paul Walker's voicing his intentions in this hypermasculine space of the locker room or wherever they were. And also, here's 
here's Paul Walker using Lainey Boggs in this very typical sort of like homosocial way of like, here is a proxy for the man that I actually want to fuck that I that like this is what's going to happen now that we see in movies, especially from the 90s all the time, the 80s and the 90s, especially. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. my God, when you say it like that, you're like, oh, good. We're going to have a bet that involves this woman. But really, this is a thing between us. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Ah, Fascinating. So. You're welcome. So you were asking about the favorite movie in this, just to continue the sexual politics kind of thing. I mean, I have to go with the final scene in which Freddie Prince Jr., like, Lainey has to ask him a couple of times, like, what were the stakes of this bet that you made? And, for, like, what did you lose? And Freddie Prince Jr. is like, I never, I never welch on a bet or whatever he says. And it turns out that yeah. at graduation, at high school graduation, he shows up wearing his like honors, whatever mm-hmm. ribbon and nothing else and a cap, but no gown. And he said he's got a soccer ball held between his thighs right over the gym. and like mm-hmm. his, his name is called and he walks up to the stage and all everyone behind him who's like it's like 90% girls are like are like making the like the little faces and then the camera zooms in <laughs> on Rachel Lee Cook's face who's just amazed there's a big smile and whatever and then boop she catches the soccer ball and I'm like oh look it's like a wedding and you just caught the penis bouquet well done like this is like <laughs> now you're a woman <laughs> or whatever it was just this very odd yep. thing she's, this is for she's- you yeah, she's getting an eyeful of her her prize, right? Her, yeah, exactly, her prize exactly. that she survived all this social machinations for. Oh man, that that scene in particular, I think that that ending one right. Additionally, as well, the other scene that I was like, "What is this about? And why is this here? And what do I do with this?" Um, we've talked about again all the folks that were were in this movie, right? Again. Anna Paquin, Kiernan Culkin, uh, Clea Duvall, who was, again, to the point of everything is gay. She could have, one, made that gayer. Two, was just super mean. Come on, Clea Duvall. This was before, my girlfriend and I were talking about this, this was before But I'm a Cheerleader. So were we like, ooh, was she just doing this to get her SAG after Union Card? And then then she was really going to double down on on true Clea Duvall, uh, making everything as gayer than it really, well... Everything is gay, but really, Clay right. Duvall makes sure that it's gayer than it should be. Um, but by far, the very random scene in the middle of the movie in which um, Kiernan Culkin is picked on in the cafeteria by, wait for it, the guy who played the Shermanator in American Pie, who also played all of those roles... He's Sherman in American Pie. He was the like weird theft guy. Was he? Was that? Uh, yep. Was that? Can't hardly wait. That he's just stealing stuff from. I think he that's was can't hardly wait. Yeah, he yeah, was just yeah. stealing stuff. Yep. That his he, he this poor man the was like you're a ginger with a weird face. You're the weird kid in every movie. And um, oh, I'm never going to pronounce his name, his last name correctly. Uh, but a future, uh, I believe, like heroes fame, uh, Milo. That's oh, who that Milo is. Meta- Milo Vetamiglia. Yeah, barely recognizable. But if you right. look it up, you're like, oh, as just random mean soccer players who pick on Kieran and Culkin, and it's then v- yeah, and th- cool? like yes, and like mm-hmm. 
we we get like an up close view of like pubes eating, which is, yeah. I mean, also like I, one of the weird. Okay, just to comment on that scene. So Freddie Prince Jr. comes in and is like, "Hey, you guys, stop picking on Roman Roy for this a kid. second. <laughs> stop picking on this kid. You're gonna eat that pube pizza that you made." that you were going to make him eat or whatever. And I'm like, I've seen Freddie Prince Jr. at this point in whatever, a tank top at soccer practice. I'm like, this is trying to be like this. It's trying to play, like it's trying to pull in uh, a role in which like the king of the school is also extremely physically intimidating and like a mountain of a man. And I'm like, Freddie Prince Jr. is kind of like, there's supposed to be like a massive threat of violence behind what he is saying. Like, like, I'd be like, if I was a Shermanator, I'd be like, there's literally no reason for me to eat I'm this not doing pizza. Like, do your, no do your I'm just, just going to leave the cafeteria and call <laughs> exactly. it a day. Yeah. <laughs> like, and also, the tone of it, too, because this was a movie that it's like, ooh, yes, we're a teen comedy, but it's like, we're a rom-com teen comedy. It was very much not in the vein where that scene would have fit in, like, an American Pie, over-the-top kind of ridiculous right, right, teen comedy. Right. So I was like, man, they're just literally cut and paste, just dropping scenes everywhere. Exactly. Um, yeah. Well, Derek, I'm sorry that I made you watch this movie. I'm not sorry that I will continue to bring so many, like, half many, half penny, uh, plus my <laughs> retirement, four acres and a mule jokes into our friendship. So that that I'm not sorry about. Um, you shouldn't be sorry for I do want to pose to you. Yes. Uh, as as an apology movie potentially mm. um i think we should we should really commit to finding some sort of again like redemption in freddie prince jr okay let's figure out what they did last summer let's go straight to it we've got let's jennifer love fucking Hewitt. do it we've got freddie oh, god yep all right that's the next movie we're doing and that is our show Thanks to Susan for finding the time to watch and talk about this movie with us and for committing herself to figuring out what was done last summer. Subscribe to the show where you listen and leave us a rating and a review, which helps people find us. In the next episode, Rachel White joins us once again to talk about 1996's Jerry Maguire, a film that saturated popular discourse with nonsense language like The Quan, like Shoplifting the Pootie, and of course, Show Me the Money. Until then, I'm Derek Gottlieb. We will see you next time.